Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Cielin Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here too. Hello, Lucy, and welcome back to this, our first episode of 2021. Hello. What's new with you? Happy New Year, if that's not, if that's still appropriate. <laughs> I think you can say until the end of this week, after which there's no talk of happiness or New Year. I was going to. Well, the, the happiness <laughs> is is wishful thinking. Put it that way. What's new then? Did you um did you catch up on all of the reading that you? presumably hope to do over the the Christmas break? Uh, I mean, not all of it. I have now, I'm now too into the uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard, the Cazalet Chronicles that you pressed on me. And I only haven't got the others because they're, uh, I can't get them. They're, they're, um, they're out of stock from where I'm trying to buy them from. Yeah. Yeah. I think there must've been a run. I think probably because of this podcast. That's highly (laughs) likely. Completely sold out. (laughs) So you're welcome, Elizabeth Jane Howard's um, I'll estate. be taking my commission. <laughs> yeah, good. But so I need to get the third one because I raced through the second one. I think I can send you the third one. Oh, that would be brilliant. We can, we can sort that out off this podcast. Maybe, but I can, maybe I we want, should do that I don't do want that everyone to think I can send the third one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also, I tried to do a bit of, I try, I'm trying to read up a bit, trying to give myself a bit more science, which I sorely neglected in the times when I was supposed to be studying science. And I also read Three Men in a Boat, for fun oh, did you? because uh, yeah i never read it before and i wanted something you not? no it's isn't it isn't it the the one of the most common favorite books of all time i think so probably yeah and you know lots of it is jolly good the dog is really good because he seems completely angelic and he's just awful <laughs> and the way he talks about him is brilliant my um my granddad has alzheimer's and the only book that he remembers is that book so he you can talk to him about Jerome K. Jerome, about that book specifically. Um, that and uh, a biography of an Everton football player. Those are the only two books that he remembers. <laughs> so we find ourselves just going from one to the other. <laughs> that gives you a lot of material, though. A lot of excellent material. Well, and it's good as well because it's so geographically specific. Um, that must be partly why it's lasted. I mean, also because a lot of it is is delightful. You know, you can still go down that stretch of river in a boat, and I bet quite a lot of it looks the same. Though you you might you might manage it better than those three, or or maybe more. Well, we're trying not to encourage my granddad to go down down the river in a boat. No, I don't think I, I don't think that. Will <laughs> Certainly be not now. Especially not at the moment. <laughs> no. Uh, well, this week it is not a, a Jerome K. Jerome special, alas. Coming up on this week's show. When it comes to the business of republishing neglected books, there is a balancing act involved in finding something that both illuminates the historical moment in which it was forged and speaks to readers today. So writes Lucy Scholes, reviewing a clutch of books, some of which pull off that balance from the British Library's Women's Writers series, which sells itself as a curated collection of novels by female authors who enjoyed broad popular appeal in their day, but which have since been lost in the mists of time. And whether or not we'll be talking about them in a century's time, we'll take a quick look at some of the books set to be published in 2021. But first, to Pakistan, where, when it comes to the writing of Western correspondence, it can be difficult to move for cliché. I have read enough books by foreign correspondents to Pakistan to recognise common tropes, writes the Karachi-based journalist Sanam Maya in this week's TLS. 
The story usually starts with disappointment at having been posted there at all, after which the narrative tends to become locked in a tragic mode. Who or what does this serve? Who in these stories counts as a source? Is there perhaps another way? Sanam Maya tackles these questions among many others and joins us on the line from Karachi now to tell us more. Hello, Sanam. Hi, thanks for having me. The occasion for uh, this wonderful piece of yours lies in the arrival of a book by a foreign correspondent, The Nine Lives of Pakistan by Declan Walsh. And we'll go into that. Um, But first, you say you were wary when this book first came through your letterbox. Can you give us a sense of, of what exactly you dreaded finding between its covers? I think it wasn't dread so much as weariness. Um, I've read enough books by foreign correspondents to sort of notice that there tends to be a pattern, there tends to be a certain story that, you know, once you've heard it a couple of times, hearing it again and again uh, can be a little dull. I think that when it comes to Pakistan and events over here, people over here, when you start hearing the same story over and over again about the place that you're from, the experiences that you're having, the people around you, it can tend to get a bit dull. It can be frustrating to hear the same thing, the same mistakes, the same cliches. And so I was a little bit, you know, wary of that. I didn't, I didn't really want to sort of commit to reading another book that was about the same thing. The same, the same thing being, being what exactly? I mean, if we just consider an average reader, what the average reader might know about Pakistan, just from say the headlines or from uh, the newspapers or from the nightly news, the story that you're told is about a country that is very, very poor, that is very chaotic, that is very violent, it's dangerous to be in. I think some of the headlines that we've had, particularly after 9-11, you know, really sum it up. I think Newsweek was the one that very famously called us the most dangerous nation in the world. And that's kind of been um, our introduction, really. That's the story that's told over and over again. And sometimes I just, I don't want to read another piece that's told through that lens. And I did wonder if this book would sort of take on more of that, as I've seen with other books, or because of how long Declan Walsh actually spent here in Pakistan, um, nine years, which is much longer than foreign correspondents tend to spend over here. I did wonder if it was going to be any different. Um, Well, actually, Walsh's book does start off with an image that is quite striking in a sense and quite poignant and self reflexive it seems he's in a hotel room he's cut off from the country uh, and he's quite painfully aware of that fact Mm. so this is in 2013 um, on the night of the elections over here Um, a period of military rule had ended a democratic government was there and handing over power to another democratic government which was a first for us we've sort of had these bouts of democratic governments military rule government being toppled coups happening So this was a big moment where it was one democratic government handing over to another. And the book opens with him in a hotel room, laying on his bed, staring at the ceiling. And he can hear outside his window, like all of the sounds of celebration and, um, you know, just men out on the streets after they've voted and they're getting the results in. And he's getting these updates on his phone. And he's in there with two intelligence officers posted at his hotel room door. He's unable to leave because he's been told his visa has been revoked. Um, He's done something to annoy the authorities and he's been asked to leave immediately and not given any explanation. He's not allowed to go out and report on the elections. um, And he's essentially only got one place to be that's on the way out. So when we first encounter Declan Walsh, he's sort of at the end of a line, isn't he? There's a kind of contract that we can expect between a foreign correspondent and the host country. Uh, And at the point at which this book starts for Declan Walsh, that contract has been broken. He's he's out. The journey is in a way over. But really here it's it's just the beginning. Well, the journey is over, but in a very abrupt way. And I think what he sets up is essentially this riddle that he wants to solve. Um, After nine years of reporting extensively on Pakistan, covering anything that may have happened in the country, going across the country, different provinces, covering human rights abuses, looking at sort of every story possible, what is it that he could have finally done that was the last straw? And so he sets up a question for himself. He wants to find out what it is that he's done. He wants to solve the mystery of where did he push the envelope too far? What line did he cross? And it's an interesting one because, I mean, he starts to look at 
you know, what secret did I finally unravel? What story did I tell that really wasn't supposed to be told? And that's kind of, that takes us into his nine years in the country and um, the answers that he finally arrives at about why he was asked to leave. Um, he does seem to have a different approach, though, as you say, possibly partly because he stayed there longer than a number of the other books that you mention of the correspondents that come to Pakistan. There's one quote I was struck by when you quote Christina Lam, who says, Pakistan is a magical land inhabited by nonsense names like the Wali of Swat, the Mir of Hunza and the Jam of Lasbela. These are only nonsense names if you don't speak that language. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, it took, I think it takes us some time to figure out some, like, I didn't know Worcester was pronounced the way that it was until I think somebody told me. Exactly. How could you? So that's a nonsense name. Like, I had a sense when I started reading Declan's book that I was a bit tired of reading the same story about Pakistan over and over. But that was a sense I had, and I really wanted to back it up. And what I ended up doing was going through every book that I had that had been written by a foreign correspondent about Pakistan, and then going into newspaper archives all the way back to partition, which is 1947, and just seeing what are some of the common ways in which this place is talked about even today. And so something like that quote that you mentioned with Christina Lam, it was really surprising to me to read that from the 80s, but then you'll see that same sentiment in a book that came out in the 2000s. Like if we look at Kim Barker's book, for instance, where she really sort of lays into the country and talks about it's such a schizophrenic place and nothing here makes sense. And what are these nonsense names? So as much as I'd like to say that, yeah, that's such an outdated idea. We don't talk in those ways anymore. It's not okay anymore. I don't think that's the case. And that is what surprised me. And it's true. You, I mean, you quote Emma Duncan of The Economist and, and she writes, why do they pretend to be in 20th century Europe when they're in 7th century Asia? I think she uses the word duped. She says that the visitor is duped. And I think the, the, that word, it sort of brings something that's adversarial in, into the relationship, but also it's something as though it seems almost to imply that something is owed to the, the person who is visiting, something is owed to the correspondence. There's a certain self-centeredness, and, and I don't know if entitlement is the right word, but as though they should have everything, they should be able to, again, I think I'm overstating this perhaps, but they should be able to solve the, 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 the riddle to win it. <laughs> I agree, and I think uh, what comes across really over there is this frustration that you've landed in this place that you never really wanted to be sent to. A lot of these books start in that way as well, where the foreign correspondent, you know, wants to go to a place like India, Sri Lanka, or even Iran, but doesn't manage to somehow get the gig or a visa falls through and they land in Pakistan. And it's almost like second best. They're annoyed to be there, but then they start to see, okay, maybe there's a certain story I could tell about this place. And then there's, frustration that the place doesn't yield to that demand, that it isn't as easy to unravel, that certain things are, if you arrive there with a set of expectations, it is going to confound those. So when we look at that Emma Duncan story, she was talking about being in, I believe it was in Lahore, and being in these sort of hanging out with these really wealthy Pakistanis and their beautiful homes and the way that they talk, the things that they talk about, the books, the films, the plays, she feels like she's almost in London. And then when she hears them talking about arranged marriages for their children, she can't quite understand how they, that dissonance, it doesn't really make sense to her. And, and it's one of the points when, when Declan Walsh writes about secrets and, and sort of says that the, the, a country is, is sort of the, the sum of the secrets that it wishes to keep, is one of his points that the keeping of these secrets has in a, in a way been aided by foreign correspondents who, who maybe haven't been making the most of the freedoms and the safety that they alone are granted? I don't, I wouldn't say that um, they aid that. I do think that if you are working here as a journalist, it is a very tricky place to work in. And times when journalists have crossed a line, they have been taken to task for it. Declan, for instance, his visa being canceled, him being sort of unceremoniously asked to leave. I think that he's really, he doesn't put across this idea that foreign correspondents aid that. And I wouldn't say that they do. I think that the secrets that 
they have tried to uncover, there's a vulnerability there. There's a fear there. Um, why is it that you keep a secret? You're, you're nervous about it being found out because it reveals where you're most vulnerable. Um, and I think that local and foreign journalists really have to figure out a way in which to do their work, to follow the most interesting stories. But also, yes, they do find out certain things where for their own safety or for the safety of the people who work with them, um, they may not share those stories. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they aid the hiding of certain secrets. There's just no way to talk about them, maybe. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the difference being you, you when you write about the the treatment of Declan Walsh, for example, the kind of the support system that he has behind him, it, it seems it suggests that it's it's more possible for him to, as you say, because the outlets are there, I suppose, he's able to write about things and not be punished in the most grave degree compared to someone, a local journalist, for example, um, you give the case of Hamir Mir, uh, or Walsh gives the case of Hamir Mir, who, who is dealt with very, very differently. So I suppose my point is, one, a foreign correspondent is is able to get away with pushing further than a local journalist, perhaps. And the line is, and it is differently positioned, say. Absolutely. And I think that there is a greater safety net that the foreign correspondent has. Um, when you have an organization that is going to back you up, that is going to pursue a case if you're treated a certain way um, versus with local media organizations where maybe they don't have the clout. They can't do something like that. Um, Declan's case, for instance, was chased up by his editors who went on to meet the prime minister when he was visiting New York for a UN summit. Um, a local journalist can't dream of that sort of thing. And we're not just talking about instances where it's a national security thing. Like you mentioned Hamid Mir. This is a situation where a man who had a very, very popular talk show went on to cross a line when it came to the army. And his he was in his car. He was shot at. Um, he was very badly injured. And his, his media organization could not stand up for him, could not do anything in that instance. Uh, the army turned around and demanded that the channel should be shut down. What do you do in the face of that kind of pressure? Uh, but as I said, it's not just when it comes to national security or reporting on the army or political parties. If I consider as a freelancer working in Pakistan, Sometimes I cannot follow up on a story because the organization that I'm working for is unable to take on the risk of a certain story. Like they aren't here in the country. I'm a freelancer. I'm not even a full-time employee of theirs. If something does go sideways, I bear the brunt of that. I can't expect them to step up in that instance. So you're always kind of working in a bit of a gray zone as compared to a foreign correspondent who has a much greater degree of security and can sometimes also just like very simply can leave if needed. I mean, in a way, the I think if you say when Declan Walsh is uncovering, as you say, all sorts of stories in Pakistan, not just the sort of not just the things that are always covered. And I get the the impression that you think this book has, has more worth than a lot of them because he's being very thorough about it and he is genuinely trying to understand. He's not trying to put his uh, interpretation on. He's genuinely trying to understand how things work and using that position of, of privilege. I think the books that, um, that work really well when they're telling a story from Pakistan is when you can clearly see that the reporter has taken the time um, to really get to know the place and hasn't tried to position themselves as a translator for the place or sort of presenting this place as this mysterious, very unknowable space where crazy things happen and they're going to explain it all to you and sort of unravel the mystery of this crazy place that makes no sense to a Western audience. Um, so when it... Books like Declan's, for instance, you can really tell that he spent the nine years here. He has really tried to get at a different story. He's tried to present um, also the way he tells it and sort of the ending that he arrives at, the small details that he notices. That was all very different for me. I hadn't noticed that before with many of the books. And there are, I mean, there are some excellent uh, stories and, and characters, aren't they? Uh, you, you talk about uh, a vigilante who kind of, sets the world straight with his with his with god and his gun and uh, can you give us a sense of kind of the, the, the of the range of characters the, the cast and, and the stories that we that we do get in the book 
Yeah, so it's um, like the book's title, I mean, Nine Lives of Pakistan. He does look, he singles out nine particularly interesting characters from his years reporting here. Um, and he does look at this top cop who, you know, the way that he sets about trying to find people um, in Karachi or the ways in which he functions within the police system. You have a woman who was one of the biggest sort of human rights activists that we had, a lawyer. She's placed under house arrest, but then she sort of gets very chummy with the police that are stationed outside her house. She gets involved in their little dramas. Um, there's, there's a, the thing I really liked about the book, though, is the way that he um, gets these small details in, uh, for instance, when he talks about uh, one of the hotels in Islamabad and the waiter is serving wine surreptitiously, you know, in these teapots. And they'll come up to you and they have a certain way of asking you, like, if you want to have a drink because it's illegal here. Or he'll look at um, something as simple as how people drive here, how there does not. It's a very organized chaos, a very organized, chaotic way, but it seems to work somehow. And he uses these stories as a way to sort of build this character um, and gets a lot of detail in, which I love. I love the story of um, a visit to an Indian diplomat's home where um, she reveals that her electricity has been cut off um, by spiteful spooks, you say. And she says, don't worry, we do the same to their people in New Delhi. And and so you get this this story of basically a tit for tat harassment between India and Pakistan, which which seems to play out in midnight ringings of each other's doorbells and then running away. Oh, yeah, ring the bell and run away just to annoy (laughs) them. And it's those kinds of things that make, like, that's the stuff that stands out. You'll hear for, you know, you'll read 10 stories about how India and Pakistan are always at each other's throats. And then you'll read a detail like that, like people going up to each other's homes and ringing the bell at 3 a.m. and running (laughs) off. That will stand out in your mind. It also makes it much much less, you know, there's that sort of tendency to dramatise it and say, look at these, this is the end times and there's there's these terrible clash. And in fact, when it turns out that people, it's also people ringing each other's doorbells just to annoy each other, it makes it much more human and less sort of, global and uh, it it lowers the stakes I would say rather than raising them. It also gives you this very um, it paints such an interesting picture doesn't it of this place that I think the richness here is the craziness there's this great uh, line in Declan's book where a friend says we don't have magical realism we just have realism like you actually cannot make them up it's stranger than fiction and I think he really revels in that and he understands that he's got a great set of characters he's got great stories that he's amassed in nine years he doesn't need to pad it out he doesn't need to add that editorializing if he just tells the story truthfully um, it's going to be pretty interesting. And he sort of keeps it very simple and economical, which I appreciate. And uh, crucially, he doesn't need to, he doesn't feel the need to round it up, to tie it all up with a with a nice, neat conclusion or, or projection even, does he? He leaves it supremely open-ended. Yeah, he doesn't end with the doom and gloom of, I think the question that a lot of these books I've seen that they end with is, will Pakistan survive? Is Pakistan built to survive? Is it coming apart at the seams? Um, What can be done for this place? And he turns around and he poses a really interesting question that this is a youthful nation, not just in terms of how long we've been around, but the fact that we have a very young population. We have more young people than old people here, and that's only going to continue. And he asks, you know, what are the ideas that are guiding these young people? What kind of lives do they envision for themselves? What kind of identity are they forming um, as Pakistanis? And I think it's a great sort of question that he puts out there. And he looks at all the things that Pakistan does that it has going for it, but also all the challenges that it faces. And so he leaves it really open-ended as to which way it could go. Um, Well, Sanam, it's nice to be able to look at the foreign journalism of the past and also very recent past, as, as you say, and then work our way towards something that sounds altogether more um, more worthwhile. Sana, my thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me.
Still to come on the show, books to keep you going through 2021, including hotly anticipated lives of writers including D.H. Lawrence, Philip Roth and Barbara Pym. And we'll be talking to Lucy Scholes about the British Library's revisionist publishing series, Women Writers. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast with Lucy Dallas and me, Thea Linarduzzi. Last month, we delivered a slightly chaotic and certainly idiosyncratic roundup of some of the books we, editors and our contributors, had most enjoyed in 2020. That's presumably still up on the website, is it, Lucy? As I say this, I, I have doubts, but it is there for anyone who wants to catch up, isn't it? It is there, yep. It's all, if you want to have a lovely look back and bask in the wonders of 2020, <laughs> uh, or more specifically, yes, the books that, that people found interesting in 2020, yes, it's still there on the website. Okay, but uh, now though, we're going to turn bleary-eyed, certainly in my case, uh, to what we have to look forward to. I'm trying to sound really upbeat here, uh, to what we have to look forward to in the new year. Uh, we're going to try and cover the whole year's worth in about five minutes. Are you feeling generally excited about this, Lucy? Not about our coverage. About I, I, I thought you meant about our little chat. I mean, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, it, yes, I think there are. there's a lot of interesting stuff coming up. Well, it's a big year for, for novels this year coming. Um Katsuo Ishiguru has his first one since winning the Nobel, I think. That's called Clara and the Sun. Edwin St. Auburn of the Patrick Melrose books has a new one coming. I'm looking forward to Francis Spufford's new novel. It's called Light Perpetual. Have you have you read either of his previous novels? I think there's just two, Golden Hill and Red Plenty. I haven't, I'm afraid, no. So uh, he's so good. I really, really recommend him. So um, Light Perpetual is is the new one, and that's about children killed in the Blitz and what they might have gone on to do had they not died. But he just, he has such a wonderful way of breathing life into the history, loads of life so that the books are really bursting with it. And he's, he's really drawn to highly specific moments of history, kind of cusp moments. So Golden Hill was set in New York in the mid 1700s. Uh, Red Plenty was a USSR at the height of the Cold War. So again, you know, during the Blitz, it's this, you know, you're on the, you're on the thread between life and death. And so, yes, I'm, 
in short, very much looking forward to that. But then there's there's Viet Tan Guyen has a sequel to The Sympathizer, um, which came out a few years ago. I think it won the Pulitzer. It's about his now his troubled spy protagonist goes into uh, goes to Paris. It's the 1980s and he's in Paris in the old underworld. Uh, but there's a whole list of others: John McGregor, Richard Powers, Colson Whitehead, Laurent Binet, Lucy, one of your favourites. Uh, I do. I am a big fan of Laurent Binet, and this is a translation of his uh, book, uh, Civilizations, which is a sort of counterfactual, a huge historical counterfactual. So that's coming out in translation. And actually, there's lots of there's lots of wonderful literature in translation as well. Of course, there's. There's, I mean, there's, there's millions of them. Uh, there's a new Haruki Murakami, there will be. And there's a really exciting one, Woli Soyinka, this is not translated, it's just exciting, uh, is is going to gonna, gonna um, produce his first novel, I think, for 50 years, called Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. So that'd be exciting, wouldn't it? Do we know how long it's been in the making? Not the full 50 years, I, I well, maybe. I don't know. No, I, no, I think, uh, I think he wrote it quite recently. I think possibly even in lockdown um Zade, there seems to be a, a zadie smith is is bringing something out called the wife of wilsden which is a sort of version of the wife of bath so that sounds fun oh that does sound fun and also i think the the uh last is it the last book in the um the mallory blackman i've forgotten the name of it knots and crosses oh, i think yeah. it's the last book in that series is coming out as well there's a few things that have popped up that are sort of on the French side. I know our fiction editor, David Horsepool, has his eye on um, Colin Jones. Uh, he's written a study called The Fall of Robespierre. Uh, and there's also Ruth Skur, who also wrote A Life of Robespierre, actually, a she while did, back, yeah. has a book about Napoleon coming out. And that's been in the pipeline for a while. That's out in May, which mm. is the 200th anniversary of Napoleon's death, of course. But uh, she's taking a characteristically creative approach to the life. Um, have you seen this? It's, it, it's subtitle is Life in Gardens and Shadows. Uh, so it grounds his revolutionary life in the quieter context of his his love of nature. It sounds it sounds very you, Lucy. It's just as soon as it just sounds brilliant. As soon as you <laughs> it said sounds it. wonderful. And because of course Josephine was very very big in the development of roses. Of course, let's talk about that for forty five minutes. <laughs> well, we could do also because it seems this is a theme because later in the year Rebecca Sonner is is going to do something similar, it sounds like, with the life of George Orwell. It's called Orwell's Roses, and it focuses on his life through the through gardening, through his love of gardening. Brilliant. I mean, why don't all books do that, really? I wonder. Well, maybe maybe this is the new thing. There's, uh, and there's also a nice-sounding uh, one, which I thought you might like. Um, Taste, My Life Through Food by Stanley Tucci, the actor, who everybody oh, yes. just likes and appears to be a really good cook. Yes. Oh, that incredible film whose name's completely fallen out of my head. Can I just quickly look it up rather than Is just... Is it Big Night? Yes. Big Night. Yeah, that's a lovely so film. So good. I watched yeah. it recently and it's just fantastic. Very dodgy accents. Not so much Stanley Tucci's, uh, but the other accents were a little bit dodgy. But I'll let them off. It was a very good film. <laughs> So I think we would probably be best to move on uh, if 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 that hasn't made listeners feel more optimistic about 2021. I'm afraid this this is not the podcast for you. We can't help you. Um, it's notoriously difficult to predict which books will strike a chord with readers, even in the year they're published, and even harder to say which ones will stick in the public mind. Longevity is a slippery beast. Um, this week, we're looking at some of the women writers celebrated and remembered by the British Library in their series launched last year to coincide with the exhibition Unfinished Business, The Fight for Women's Rights. Our expert guide here is Lucy Scholes, who writes a monthly column for the Paris Review about out-of-print and forgotten books. She's written about some of these British Library reissues for us, and she joins us now to talk them through. Lucy, welcome back to the podcast and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. It's nice to be here again. Well, here we all are again in our, um, not in the studio, in our individual, <laughs> our individual booths, but there we go. Um you must spend a lot of time in your in your normal working life thinking about forgotten writers. I was wondering if you have kind of got detected any particular trends or genres that are neglected more than others. Well, that's an interesting question. I guess I mean the thing is I think in recent years it's become looking for these um neglected classics these sort of forgotten gems has become quite sort of big business let's say um I mean there's always been kind of good lists around penguin classics list the virago modern classics and these in themselves have almost become classics of the genre I suppose and actually but in more recent years it seems like other publishers are starting to get in on the uh, on the act and try and find their own 
um, gems from the past that people have forgotten about. And I think in doing so, they are trying to find the less um, the less expected titles. Let's say I don't know if it's a particular genre of things that hasn't that is um, sort of being discovered, but I think what people want to find now is not the sort of forgotten work by a writer who we might recognize their name. It's like somebody completely new who's been neglected for a sort of reason that they were writing outside of their genre or outside of their age at the time. I don't know if that sort of answers your question in a roundabout way. Mm, and I suppose inevitably a lot of these rediscovered writers of women just because a lot of women writers were basically kind of ignored or or writers of colour or you know from different cultures or I mean that the, the kind of sociological reasons why they were neglected. Yeah definitely and I think the British Library series that we're going to talk about a bit more um, bit more detail that's you know and a good example of that that these are women writers who were some of them were very popular in their day but readers today just might not be aware of them because they've sort of sunk out of print over the years but yes you know writers of colour um, you know again that's a kind of another area that people are trying to kind of bring back uh, people who we might have forgotten I mean it's harder to find some of the sort of things you want to find are harder to find because they weren't published in the first place so there's a sort of tricky you know line to line to kind of um you know walk along that you know you, you want to find these books that you think were missed at the time because somebody didn't recognize their brilliance but actually there is you know some things that you think should have been published just never made it to be published in the first place and as you say for this british library series th this was not these were not you know um unpublished people some of them were actually quite successful in their own time weren't they what sort of writers were they yeah some of them were particularly successful there are people here who I really wasn't that aware of but um somebody called Mary Essex um who was I think this is just one of the many um pseudonyms that she used uh, I think her real name was um Ursula Bloom and she published sort of over 500 novels and biographies in the course of her life and, and lots of short stories and newspaper columns so that's a huge amount of work to now be sort of pretty much forgotten by most people today. And um, one of the things that's interesting about the uh, the British Library series is is its criteria or its explanation of itself includes the word middlebrow. These are middlebrow writers. Um, would would these writers have been defined as such at the time? Because I mean, the term was coined in the twenties, I think, by Punch, and it was already being kind of tussled over at the time. Some some people thought it was used it as a criticism. Virginia Woolf famously and J.B. Priestley and others thought it was something to be praised. I mean, do you, how do you think these readers would have felt about the label if it was applied to them at the time? I mean, I think there's a kind of there's obviously an ongoing discussion that we we have. I think probably ever since the time you know the term middlebrow has first been used, this idea of high literature versus something that's more middlebrow, possibly more readable. Some might say possibly you know the novels are more accessible than some of the particularly the sort of more high modernist um, you know literature being written. I don't know. I mean, there's been great attempt in more recent years to really rescue these types of novels. I mean, someone like Nicola Bowman at Persephone is doing great work in bringing back a lot of forgotten writers, many of whom were termed middlebrow. I mean, she even wrote a book about the women's middlebrow novel, talking about how popular it was, how important these books were. Um, but there is still, you know, we still argue today about the problem of women writing novels that are set mostly in the domestic environment, and then people accusing those women of being kind of narrow-minded and writing about the small-scale things in life and not the big wider world and then men do it and it's considered to be something much more important. Um, so I think middlebrow it depends for some people today, some readers today, you know, this is a sort of badge of honour that people love to find. You know, I think, and I think particularly the British Library series will find a lot of wonderful, you know, um, rapturous kind of uh, audience with people who love the Persephone books, some of the Virago modern classics list. Um, I think their list does a sort of two-fold thing. There are there are writers who might fall into the middle brow side of things, but they also publish a lot of really interesting and quite innovative writers. Um, so there's going to be a big audience out there for these kind of books. And people, you know, some people really love it. And it's not necessarily a, you know, I think it depends where you stand on it. I don't think it's a particularly demeaning thing to be called but then I do enjoy reading these books I just think I think those these those labels I just I, I they all really annoy me actually I find them fantastically unhelpful because they're they're either used to punch up or punch down 
And really, it just means that a lot of people enjoyed reading the book. Well, then Hilary Mantel is middle brown, so is Shakespeare, and so is Ulysses. A lot of people have enjoyed Ulysses. Actually, that you probably can't make that case. I mean, yeah. I mean that you... point. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just think it's rubbish. It just means something that a lot of people enjoyed, which is. But that's exactly the criticism. You know, if you were a high modernist, a high modernist, so, so say you're Virginia Woolf, who did take issue with it, who did use it as a criticism. Her point was precisely that. You know, the middle brow people, uh, people who who enjoyed middle ba- middle brow uh, books were sort of compromised and and you know not devoted to to the highest of, of artistic pursuit and and you know all that sort of stuff. I'm not at all agreeing with that. I'm just wondering. Mm. I suppose at the at the fact of it of its being reclaimed and and as you said, Lucy uh, Lucy Scholes Lucy S not Lucy D <laughs> um, <laughs> being reclaimed and worn as a as as a badge of of honor. I just think it's a, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think there is something about that that it definitely is a you know I, I think even when I was I sort of tweeted something about you know reading some of these books and there are certain people who follow me who are big fans of of that sort of middle brow fiction, um you know were keen to know what they were like they wanted to read them you know there are a load of people who like that and that's not I don't think it's it's you know it's not better it's not worse it's you know you just people not they like what they know they know what they like um and for some it can be a useful it's sort of almost gone so far that it's now a bit of a useful terminology to use perhaps even though obviously it you know at the end of the day it's still often yet to be punching down at them which is unfair I mean, you and you say then to go back on your point about the, you know, about women writing about the family life. I mean, that's absolutely, of course, that's that's absolutely still the case that that um, people um, people make those sort of um, uh, accusations, if you like. Uh, and it's, it, you say it's a central concern in many of these novels, but that doesn't mean, uh, in a, it, even though there's nothing wrong with a small domestic setting. I, I mean, as People often say that's what Jane Austen did. But here there are big forces of history and politics and societal pressure being brought to bear on people, aren't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that's what sometimes people forget about these sorts of novels. Just because, you know, you set a novel in a domestic environment doesn't mean that you can't also be talking about the wider world and and history around it. And I think some of them, you know, the ones that really stood out for me from this list as well were the ones that did both that. Um, In particular, there's the May Sinclair's The Tree of Heaven, which is set... Uh, just well, sort of it begins before the First World War and then you follow the protagonist through the war um, and it was published in 1917 so that's you know while the war is still happening and what you see is a an ordinary middle class family um, who have got uh, three sons and a daughter um, and you see them having to sort of go about their day-to-day lives of you know just the regular stuff but also contending with these great forces of history the daughter gets involved in the women's suffrage movement and the um, the three men find themselves you know off in the trenches and despite the sort of pulls of what their sort of individual identities um you know demand of them or what they think is right or wrong and and Sinclair does that beautifully she shows how you know and I think she gets the point that or I, I definitely came away from that novel feeling like I had sort of understood a bit more about what it would have been like to be alive at that point and how the great disaster that was, you know, the great sort of tragedy of the loss of the First World War being such a large communal loss, but Sinclair focused it through this one individual family. Which is what, you know, the great Russians did. I mean, and nobody yeah. says, oh, it's just domestic. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of, that's, that's a way of doing it. Um, there's yeah. another one that you mentioned, um, Father by Elizabeth von Arnim, which I'm going to talk about because I, I've read it. So I'm, I'm just showing off to say that I know what, <laughs> I know what happens in that one. Perfect. Um, Let's talk about it. <laughs> well, it's one of the more lighthearted ones, as you say, and it does, it, does start off quite jolly and it's very funny in some parts but even so the the situations and the plight of the characters they they're points they're very serious and really heartbreaking and and in some ways it seemed to me that it's a it's a book about loss and waste of human potential and happiness do you think they're they're generally um small f feminist books would you say that's a tricky question. I mean, whether the writers would have identified as feminist at the time, whether they would identify as something as feminist in the way that we understand feminism today, you know, these are complicated things. I think something like Father is an interesting one. It was one of the ones I was less taken with, I have to admit. But like you say, it did bring up a lot of very interesting um 
sort of issues from the day, particularly this idea of the, the, the surplus woman, I suppose, the women who were left over after the First World War who didn't find husbands. And then what did they do with themselves when they, as the protagonist of this book finds, that she's sort of no longer necessary in her father's life, or she sort of is in one way, but not another. He's marrying again, and she wants a life of her own. So it sort of chimes with things like Virginia Woolf's essay, you know, Room of One's Own. It chimes with something like um, Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is also about a, a woman who wants a, a, you know, a life of her own existence of her own outside of her family. Um, so these were clearly important issues of the day that women were grappling with. Um, you know, I don't, I honestly don't know enough, um, particularly about Elizabeth von Armen's um, own thoughts on feminism to be able to comment any further, I think, though. I suppose I don't mean, you know, uh, were they card carrying feminists, but it it, just, it seems to me that, that that in the book, what's happening is that, that, that because women don't have any agency, then, then there is a huge, uh, there's a huge sense of loss and frustration. And of course, as is always the way, this impacts very badly on the men as well. No, I mean it doesn't. It doesn't help anyone that situation. And 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 the book seems to be a laying out of saying this situation is a waste. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the protagonist is is sort of you know helpless. There are lots of funny bits, and she does sort of manage to make her make her way in the world um, outside of her father's home. But you're right. It's not always it's not easy and, and she is a sort of a stifled, she has lived a stifled life, let's say, put it that way. You know, she's trying to grasp this freedom while she can. Um, and I think this comes through in quite a few of the, of the books as well. You know, I mean, there's even in the tree of heaven, there's a sense of, you know, the women being stuck behind while the men are off at war, which is not necessarily a great thing for the men, obviously either. Um, and even in a later one, which, you know, another of my favorites, I think from the series Chatterton Square by E.H. Young, um, again, it's the sort of, you know, a be a portrait of a family. Um, this is in the run-up to the Second World War, uh, the sort of goings-on, the day-to-day comings and goings of these two families who live close to each other. But underneath it, you find these stories of, of two women whose, again, whose lives have been very affected by the limitations on them. Well, three women, I should say. There are two central wives and mothers, one of whom is in a very unhappy relationship. Her husband is a sort of pompous arse, basically. Um, and... <laughs> Her, uh, though Young puts it much more eloquently than me, um, and uh, and the other one is a woman who's um, separated from her husband, which is a great scandal, obviously. And then you have her friend, a spinster, like the character in in, in Father, um, who is completely dependent on this this friend of hers for offering her a home. I mean, these sorts of issues are you know clearly important. You don't need to be drumming it into our heads that this is what these books are about to realise that the. The, the plight of women at this time was, you know, quite a precarious one. I think the blurb, the blurb to that book makes the point that uh, Chatterton Square was was published 10 years after uh, a change in divorce law, um, calls for a change in divorce law resulted in the Matrimonial Co- uh, Causes Act of, of 37. So you can sort of see how those three, the, 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 the options or, or lack of options that you laid out there of these three women that was that was it. That was your choice. Which one is it going to be? Marriage, unhappy marriage, spinsterhood. Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly limited. I also love the the brilliantly named Mrs. Spanner. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Spanner the spinster. Miss Spanner the yes. spinster, presumably. Yeah. Sorry, Miss Miss Spanner. Yes, I would think even, so. Even even better. <laughs> Um, and in terms of the evolution of the novel, I mean, maybe we answered this earlier by um, by by saying they were Middlebrow. Is there any formal experimentation? Is there any of that kind of thing or not really? I mean, certainly not in the way that you'd be thinking of what sort of formal experimentation at that stage in, you know, in the sort of high literary fiction would be. So they don't they don't really challenge their readers in that sense. But I don't know if that's a a bad thing or a good thing really or maybe you know it's just just the way it is so some of them were very successful that we, we've established this and and i've got reprints in you know in, in, and and people are aware of them but but who who is there who would you recommend that we have definitely never heard of but we should read do you think well the one that really stood out for me on that was one called um oh the brave music by dorothy evelyn smith which i really wasn't sure about when I sort of first started reading it. It's a coming of age novel and it's set just before the First World War. Um, The main character is a a young woman called Ruin Ashley and she's looking back on her life as a child. And she grows up in sort of Yorkshire 
Um, her father is a non-conformist minister. Their household is quite a dull one. Her mother is a very a, a sort of beauty. Uh, she's a she's a beautiful woman who gave up what could have been a sort of more interesting life to have children with this um, with her very boring husband, who sort of keeps her, um, you know, again get very few um, very very limited existence really and just these terrible things happen to the family I mean you know one of their children dies um, the mother then runs away with a lover the father then goes off to be a sort of um, a missionary and this poor girl sort of has to live through this but it's not I don't know there's not it's not sort of sentimental it's very beautifully done and there's a and actually it's very cleverly done in the way that you have the older the narrator looking back on her younger life and so you're able to sort of juxtapose things that she understands as an adult like as an adult she understands how terrible her mother's life probably was for her but as a child she obviously just realized that something terrible was going on in her home but she couldn't work out what it was and I think it took me completely by surprise because it has echoes of it has sort of Dickensian echoes to it it made me think of things you know like the Bronte sisters um, even a little bit of the secret garden these sorts of stories but it seemed very fresh and new and um, sort of urgent the way it was written uh, and yeah that really took me by surprise and I would definitely be more interested in looking at um, I'd be interested to see what else uh, Dorothy Evelyn Smith had written but I don't think she wrote she certainly wasn't one of the more prolific writers included here Okay, that's brilliant. That's um, that's one that we've all got to go away and we haven't read it. We can be pretty sure that we haven't read it. Now we're all yeah. got to go away and read it. <laughs> yeah. And I think one, one of the interesting things I think we probably should mention about this series is that maybe different to something like Persephone or the Virago modern classics, this is very much kind of putting these books um, into the context of their time. I think one of you mentioned, you know, in the blurb that talks about the marital um, act or, you know, different things. And these are very important at the beginning of the books. They're... Um, there are sort of timelines of significant things that happened around the time this novel was written that might have seeped into its pages. So we're all going to go and read Dorothy Evelyn Smith, is that right? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, the brave music. Brilliant. Let's do that. Thank you very much for joining us, Lucy. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Sana Meyer and Lucy Scholes you'll find the pieces we've discussed in this week's issue of the TLS in print online and in the app edition the website is a good place to start though so go to the hyphen tls.co.uk thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.